just a few minutes, uh, we'll be looking at two passages of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, we'll look at verses 8 through 13, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 8 through 13, and then we'll also be looking at the book of Acts chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 6 this morning, so if you want to go ahead and, and find your way there in your Bible or using the Bible app, it's it's in the, in the Bible app, and it's also uh, online on our website, uh, all the, uh, the verses there. So you can, you can use any of those things that you would like to use uh, to be able to find the passage of Scripture uh, this morning. So I uh, just want to make that uh, available to you. If we asked the people that know you best, would they say that you are a servant? In other words, do you live your life in such a way that those that are closest to you would not hesitate to say that you are always willing to serve? I remember uh, my very first full-time ministry position. I was uh, the student pastor of a church, and uh, they were having a what was known as a church work day. And uh, the church work day is where the people of the church would show up and they'd work, right? So they spent the day doing whatever needed to be done around the church. And on this particular day, they were digging a ditch from the office areas uh, to the road that would eventually um, go to the church on the other side. And so I arrived at the church work day and I jumped into the ditch with my shovel and everyone stopped working and they just kind of looked at me and they said what are you doing I said well it's the church work day I'm here to work and they said well we've never had one of our pastors come to church work day and work and to be honest I was a little dumbfounded by that and and what I want us to understand from this message this morning is that if you know Christ as your Savior, then you are His servant. Then you are His servant. It's not optional. We don't get to say, well, I'm not going to serve. It's required. It's required to serve. And what we must understand is that not everyone serves Christ in the same way. Right? Because we all have we all have different ways that God has gifted us spiritually, and, and uh, He will give us opportunities to use those gifts. However, every Christian should have the mindset that they are a servant or even a slave, if you will, of Jesus Christ. And yes, I understand that there is a difference between those terms, but Jesus used those terms interchangeably when He said this, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So sometimes we have this mindset that serving Christ is like doing volunteer work. I don't know if you've ever done any kind of volunteer work, but maybe maybe you've done some volunteer work with an organization, and you know what you do, right? You go and you volunteer. You give a few hours of your time now and then to help out, and, and you feel good about yourself because you went and you volunteered and you gave some hours of your time to help this organization. But serving Christ is not volunteer work. Serving Christ is 24-7, 365. It doesn't matter what you're, what you're doing or where you're at. You're always His servant. You're looking for ways to serve Him on a consistent basis. He, he rescued you from eternal judgment, and so we are saved to serve. We're saved to serve. Now, with that, I would ask that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's Word as we first look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, and then we'll flip back to Acts chapter 6, 
I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And then we're going to flip back to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, and they said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they sent before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. May you lay on our heart this morning that we are saved to serve. Whether that's official capacity or just being a believer, we are saved to serve. Speak to our hearts this morning. For your saints are listening. May we be a changed people because of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The title of this message is, Are You a Deacon? That is because within the context of the local church, some people are called to be set apart servants specifically, or what we would call a deacon. And the word deacon is actually a transliteration of a Greek word which means servant. And there are over 100 New Testament uses of the word servant. And almost all of them refer to Christ or to Christ's followers. There are only a few that refer to the office of deacon in the church. Now, we've had roughly 12 sermons in this series so far, but we need to understand what, what is the role of all Christians, and that role is to be a servant. But also, we want to understand what does it mean to be a deacon, according to the scriptures. And so, as I like to do, here's my sermon in a sentence. All Christians are servants of Christ. Some are specifically set apart servants. And then... My goal is to prove that. All servants are servants of Christ. Or all Christians are servants of Christ. Some are specifically set apart servants. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use God's word to show us that this is true. And so first, we want to see that we are all servants of Christ. We are all servants of Christ. As I stated in the introduction, being a servant of Christ as a Christian, it's not optional. We're all servants of Christ. There are no exceptions to this. If you're a follower of Christ, saved by Christ, then you are Christ's servant. We have reasoning for this, and so I want to look at three reasons for this. First, Christ is our example. Christ is our example. Jesus said that even he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, came to earth as he came to earth. Jesus could have been born anywhere in the entire world where he would have grown up with all the comforts that, would, that, that, that this world could afford him. But instead, God chose a poor carpenter's wife to give birth to the Son of God. 
And it, it kind of blows our mind if we stop and think about it. He grew up in a modest home where he learned the trade of his earthly father. Jesus didn't have soft hands of a crowned head, but he had calloused hands of a carpenter. It took his disciples some time to comprehend that Jesus, as the promised Messiah, didn't come to conquer all of his enemies and all their enemies and establish his throne on earth. They thought that that's what he was going to do. And they thought, well, we, guess what, guys? We get to share in Christ's earthly power and glory. We know this is what they thought because as we read the Gospels, the disciples, what are they doing? They're constantly battling for power. James and John even went so far as to have their mommy ask Jesus to have them sit on his right and on his left when he came into his kingdom. And then his other disciples, well, they do. They get mad, right? Well, who do these guys think they are? Even at the Last Supper, when Jesus' thoughts are on his imminent death, what are the disciples doing? You remember? They're fighting over which one of them will be the greatest. We're told, we're not told for sure when this argument actually took place, whether it was before Jesus washed their feet or after, but I like to imagine things. So I like to imagine that it's after. I like to imagine that these disciples are in there bickering about who's the greatest. No, I'm the great. I'm going to be the greatest. I'm the greatest. And here comes Jesus, who is the greatest. And he just comes in and starts washing their feet. And he gives them a lesson about the greatest being a servant. And he says this, For who is the greater? One who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. It's like a mic drop moment, right? That's what we, it's like, boom! Jesus just told them, just, I'm the one that's here as a servant. I'm the greatest, but I'm here as a servant. The God-man, the greatest man ever to walk the face of this earth says, I am the one who serves. And it's mind-blowing. Now, are you ready for your mind to really be blown? Because after Jesus comes in his glory and everyone is subject under his rule, you would think that he would no longer have the role of servant and that he would demand that everyone serve him. Yet when Jesus comes again, he says that he will have his followers recline at the table and he will wait on them. Christ is our example when it comes to serving. Secondly, to be like Christ, we must serve like Christ. To be like Christ, we must serve like Christ. Do you know what Jesus said after he washed the feet of his disciples? Exactly this is what he said in John 13. 14 through 17. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Listen, it's easy to say that to be like Christ, then I must be a servant. That's real easy to say. We can say that all the time. Like, I have to be a servant if I want to be like Christ. We have, we have become so good at giving Sunday school answers to, to things, to questions. But it doesn't matter if you know the answer to the question and you're not doing it. It's one thing to say, we, we have to be a servant. It's another to be a servant, right? The word servant originally was used of those who served the tables like a modern-day waiter. In that culture, serving tables was a lowly task and was thought to be undignified. And as we know, Jesus did not care about the cultural norms. Instead, he was countercultural, and he calls us to be the same. But what should our motivation for this type of service be? You see, some people serve because... 
They like that other people notice their service. Somebody's going to give them praise. Some people serve because it makes them feel important or needed. The right reason to serve is to bring God glory. Because he saved you when you were his enemy. And you deserve judgment. How do you know when you truly have a servant's heart? It has been said by how you act when you're treated like one. That's how you know if you really have a servant's heart. When somebody treats you like a servant, how do you respond? If you know Christ as your Savior and you want to be like Christ, you must serve like he served and serve others. The last thing I want us to see is this. Some are specifically set apart to serve. Some are specifically set apart to serve. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, Paul mentions the spiritual gift of helps or service in Romans 12, 7. Peter tells us that we are to use whatever gifts we have for one primary purpose, to serve one another and to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God in 1 Peter 4, 10. All Christians must indeed serve in various forms. It is also true that God has specifically gifted some people for service in supportive, practical roles and often behind-the-scenes ways. Let me use a, a football analogy, if you don't mind. People who have the gift of service are like linemen on the football team. Offensive linemen, they, don't, they rarely get noticed, right? Nobody notices what an offensive lineman does unless he does something bad like allow the quarterback to be sacked, and then everybody notices what the offensive lineman does. But if they do the work and they work hard, the quarterback is able to do his job. That's the idea. It doesn't matter whether you have the gift of service or not. We're all called to serve. And what that means is that you look around and you help. You look around and you say, say, I wonder where help is needed. Yes, you can see trash on the floor at the church and you can blow your top over it. Or you can just pick it up and throw it away. You can see someone spill their coffee and think to yourself, that's why we should not have coffee in the church. How dare they? Or you could just help them clean it up. You could see the trash cans full and think someone needs to take care of the trash in this church. Or you could just carry it to the dumpster and put a clean bag in it. You could go into the bathroom and see the sink's all dirty and you could get mad about it. Or you could grab a paper towel and clean it up. After a luncheon or a dinner or whatever at church, you could bolt out of here as fast as you possibly can get away. Or you could make sure there's enough help to clean up afterwards. You could sit around your home all day and do absolutely nothing. Or you could actually do some housework and help out. You see what I'm saying? Some of us have become professional complainers. Right? We see the problem, and rather than fix it, we just complain about it. Like, I can't believe this. I can't believe it. I wish somebody knew something about that. Well, if you notice it, why don't you do something about it? We should be serving, not complaining. For some reason, a servant's heart gets rid of the complaints. But to go past that kind of service... We're all called to something else, or some of us are called to something else. And that's why I want us to see next. So some, or every Christian is called to serve. No matter what, we're called to have a servant's heart. But secondly, point number two, we have those who are set apart to serve. There are some Christians who are set apart to serve. And I'm going to spend the rest of this message talking about those that this applies to. As the New Testament church began to grow more and more, some areas needed to be attended to. And that needed to have some servants in certain areas. And the office of deacon, which means servant, became an official office. What we're going to look at are, are this office of deacon and the qualifications of a deacon, the work of a deacon, and finally the reward of a deacon. So first let's notice the office of a deacon. The office of a deacon is recognized in the Bible, and it 
And it kind of finds its roots in the passage we read earlier from the book of Acts. And so what was going on was this church in Jerusalem had gone through this significant growth spurt. That's that's a good problem to have. And it seems like many who had visited Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost were subsequently converted. And they stayed on uh, to grow in their faith in Christ. And so this created an issue where, where you had... Uh, uh, these where you had material needs and it led to a temporary arrangement when the people were pulling their resources together to meet the needs in the church and so there were many widows who did not have sufficient income and their daily needs were being met through service now the real issue arose when these Greek speaking Jews felt that their widows were being neglected in favor of the native Hebrew-speaking Jews, Hebrew-speaking widows. Now, this could have easily become a distraction for the apostles, right? The apostles could have said, boy, we don't know what to do in this situation. Let's have a church fight. But they sensed what was going on. They said, well, we have to find a way to deal with this situation. And so they told the church to select seven faithful men that they could put in charge of the task of serving these widows. And we don't know why they were why there were seven. We have no idea. Maybe they just felt like seven was the correct number to do the job. But what is important to note is the word deacon is never used in Acts chapter 6. However, many people agree that this is the prototype for deacons. They were officially recognized and ordained for the job. What did they do? Well, they assisted the apostles by serving in practical matters, which was distributing the food fairly so that the apostles could do what? Focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. And later on, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he addresses uh, this letter to the overseers and the deacons in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And many think the reason that Paul mentions deacons is because they helped with the financial gift that the church had sent to Paul. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul mentions the office of elders and deacons. In his letter to Titus, he doesn't mention deacons at all. And it's possible the reason being is because uh, the reason deacons isn't mentioned in Titus is because it's not really a mandatory position in the church, but should be a position if the need is there. So as the church grows, elders need help in the area of administration and some other matters, and so they focus on shepherding the flock and prayer, and then at that point, deacons are to be officially recognized. So, so here's the question. How should deacons be chosen? Should we just be like, this guy looks like a deacon? Let's make him a deacon. I don't, how does a deacon look? Do they wear glasses? Do they not wear glasses? Are they bald? Do, are they not bald? Do they have a beard? Do they not have a beard? How do they look? Well, we got to look at the qualifications. I want to address something real quick before the, we look at the qualifications of a deacon. Sometimes we may fall prey to this idea that the qualifications for a deacon are not as high as the qualification for elders. And that's just not the case, except for, uh, uh, for the ability to teach. Elders have to be able to teach. The qualifications for, for deacon in 1 Timothy 3 are pretty comparable to the qualifications for an elder. They have to be spiritually mature men and women. And yes, you heard me right. I did say women. We'll get to that in a minute. First, we want to notice this. Men's character and family life. So the first qualifications are, are a man's character and his family life. You notice that there's this emphasis on being above reproach in their family and character for men. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have six character qualifications. First, the deacon must be dignified. He must be a dignified man. This means that their behavior is worthy of respect. It is the opposite of always being a goof off. A deacon should have some seriousness about them so that when he serves, uh, they, that the people sense that he's genuinely concerned for him. So that they trust and respect him. This is part of what he says in uh, Acts chapter 6, or what it says in Acts 6. If you can't trust a deacon, then he really does not have much to be looked into. He probably shouldn't be a deacon if he can't be trusted. Secondly, something that goes along with being dignified is that a deacon should not be double-tongued. This is double-talk. 
This is uh, hypocritical. The deacon can't tell one person one thing and then something else to, to someone else in order to please everyone, in order that, that other people might be happy. A deacon can't be insincere in their speech. And since the deacons were, were involved in handling church finances, they had, to, they had to be a man of their word. What they said is what you knew to be true. They can't be double-tongued. Thirdly, a deacon must not be addicted to much wine. Now we may say, well, that's, that's an odd way to put it. Much wine. It's not the, exactly the same as it's used for elders. It doesn't say drunkard like it does for elders. A deacon, it doesn't say a deacon can't be a, a drunk. It said not addicted to much wine. Why did they put it that way? Well, wine was commonly served in the household to show hospitality. So you go over to someone's house and, hey, let me pour you some wine. Now, can you imagine as deacons are going from house to house? Hey, let me give you some wine. Okay. They go to the next house. Hey, let me give you some wine. Okay. Go to the next house. Hey, let me give you some wine. Okay. So they'd be in danger of becoming a drunkard if they just keep drinking wine everywhere they go. So that's why we have this, this, don't be addicted to much wine. Fourthly, he must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Also a qualification for elders from Titus 1.7. It's shamefully greedy. It's, it's wanting wealth so bad that it brings shame and disgrace to the person. The deacon's duties often involve distributing money and gifts to those who are needy. There was always the temptation, uh, there would always be this temptation for embezzlement. A deacon could not be a man that was out pursuing dishonest gain, like, oh, I gotta have more money. And that's what it's talking about. So you can't be greedy for dishonest gain. Fifthly, a deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is the term that Paul uses for Christian truth, especially the truth of the gospel. The idea of mystery is a reference to something that was once hidden, but now it's revealed. And it's revealed through Christ. This means that a deacon must be a man of conviction when it comes to the central truths of the Christian faith. Paul refers to a clear conscience, most likely a contrast to all these false teachers that were in Ephesus. They did not have a clear conscience. And Paul says that they had shipwrecked their faith. So a deacon, they have to hold the, the Christian principles, the Christian truth, the Christian doctrine tightly to their heart. With a clear conscience. Sixthly, the deacon must first be tested and found to be blameless. Same qualification for elders. Literally means not called to account. So no legitimate charges could be brought against this deacon. And this is determined by testing. Now, this is not like having a deacon probationary period. And then later they become a deacon. And many churches do that. In fact, that's what our church has done. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but I do not believe that's what this is talking about when it says they're to be tested. What it does mean is that a deacon should have an observable track record before he's put into office. You don't put them into office and then just, just test them to see how they're going to hold up. You don't say, well, why don't you be a deacon and we're going to see if you really are trustworthy. No, you test them first. And then you recognize him as a deacon. And then Paul has two ways for us that a deacon is to be above reproach in their family life. First, they must be the husband of one wife. That's the same requirement for elders, a one-woman man. I would refer you to the message from last week as to why I believe this is talking about, about a man of moral purity. And it's not a, a complete prohibition on a divorced man being an elder or a deacon. Just listen to that message from last week if you want to know what, what I believe Scripture clearly teaches. This is important because a deacon may often be called upon to minister to widows and single women. So he has to have uh, be pure in thought and in deed. And second part of that is a deacon must manage their children and their household well. Same requirement for elders. The principle is the same principle. If a man can't manage his household, then don't promote him to manage anything in the church. Now I want us to notice two specific things concerning deaconesses. 
And we're going to notice a deaconess's character and faithfulness. Deaconess's character and faithfulness. First, I want us to notice that right in the middle of this discussion, Paul, seemingly out of nowhere, as you're reading it, inserts verses about women. If you're reading through 1 Timothy chapter 3, they seem out of place. Now, I know some translations, including the English Standard Version, which I read from, says they're wives, but the Greek word is women. Interestingly, Paul then returns right back to his discussion about deacons, right after he talks about these women, and then he goes right back into deacons. And so here's the question that we have to ask. Does this refer to deacons' wives, as some translations put it, or does it refer to women, as other translations put it? Is it... Is it Talking about a deaconess, a woman deacon. There are arguments in favor of both views. Those who favor the view that Paul refers to the wives of deacons, saying that the reference being sandwiched between the qualifications for a deacon, they, they say, well, that's just kind of odd. Why wouldn't he finish the qualifications for a deacon and then start something else? Why wouldn't he just kind of mash it in the middle? And... That's a decent argument. But why then would Paul also not mention any qualifications for elders' wives when he mentions qualifications for deacons' wives? That's another question to ask, right? But those who are in favor of the view that Paul refers to deaconesses look at the word likewise, which is parallel to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, right? Where Paul says, likewise deacons. And then he says, likewise women. And so it seemed like he's addressing a third group. I believe that this is a reference to deaconesses for a few reasons. Mainly, though, we know that all through Scripture we see women serving. And honestly, there's not a word for deaconess at this time. So Paul's not going to say deaconesses as well. We also know in Romans chapter um, 16, verse 1, Phoebe is actually called a deacon or servant of the church. Women deacons could have been married to male deacons or to elders or to any men, assuming that they had time to serve. It's also possible that deaconesses could have been widows or single women that were devoted to serving the Lord. It seems like they would have been assisting the deacons in their duties, especially when it came to ministering to women in the church. And Paul gives four qualifications. First, that they must be dignified. Same qualification for male deacons, so I'm not going to go back over that. To put it plainly, they must not be goof-offs. Secondly, they must not be slanderers. In other words, they are not to be attacking the reputation of another person. And this is true of a deacon or a deaconess. This is true of a Christian. We shouldn't be attacking the reputation of another person. We can't be going from house to house with juicy tidbits of gossip or slandering another person. Nothing will destroy a church quicker than gossip will destroy a church. Churches are destroyed from a gossiping tongue. And to be completely honest, right, our church and other churches have had a history of this. So let me just take this moment to, to just give you a reminder that it's sinful, that it's from the devil, and that it will only bring destruction. And let me also remind you that if you're a part of it, then you're disqualifying yourself from the office of a deacon. We must control our tongue and not allow our tongue to be poison to other people. Don't be a gossip. Because it will destroy the church so quickly. And if somebody tries to gossip to you, just say, I don't want to hear it. You see how quickly that takes care of the problem? I don't want to hear it. That's how easily you take care of it. Thirdly, they must be temperate. Same as elders. Sound judgment. This is a reference to someone who does not live by their emotions, but by obedience to the word of God. If a woman, or anyone for that matter, is swayed by their emotions, they're going to struggle uh, with, with meeting the needs of needy people. And they're going to struggle with, with how does this line up with the truth of God? His truth is the only source of true healing for our problems. A woman must be able to discern truth from error, just like a man. 
It's not like, oh, well, you know, men, they can really discern truth from error, but a woman, they can't do that. No, they both have to be able to do it if she's going to effectively serve. So we have all these character traits, and then lastly, we notice that she must be faithful in all things. This means that they have to follow through. If they're assigned something, they do it. And I know sometimes, I know sometimes for me, um, that's a struggle. Because you know what my problem is? I have all these great ideas. <laughs> and then I realize I don't have the people to do the great idea that I have. And so what do I do? I try to do it myself. And then I get in the middle of this great idea I have. And I'm like, man, I'm crazy. And then I have to stop my great idea. We'll get to that in a minute. But if an elder asks a deacon to give some kind of, or a deaconess to give some kind of care to a family, he must be able to trust that it's going to happen, that she's going to follow through what, he, what he's asking her to do. Here is the issue that many churches have been faced with. They have taken the office of deacon and they made it something that it's not. And by doing so, they have, I believe, unbiblically prohibited women from serving in the role. Because of taking the office and went, shoot, this is what the office is, and now women aren't qualified to be it. You see the problem with that? And then churches wonder, well, why aren't more women serving? Why aren't more women doing this? Well, they are, they're just they're fulfilling the role of a deaconess, they're just not being recognized for. Here's where the rubber actually hits the road, right? Let's look at the work of a deacon. What do they do? What is interesting is that Paul never tells us what a deacon does. He never says, this is what deacons do. If we look at Acts 6 as a prototype for being a deacon, we can see how they served. And so let's use that as a prototype Here's what I have concerning what a deacon is supposed to do quickly, running out of time again. I'm terrible. But uh, number two, to serve elders in the church in practical needs. I don't know why I said number two, but that's what they're supposed to be doing, to serve the elders in the church in practical needs. So their main job was to free up the apostles from having to administer the distribution of food to the Hellenistic uh, widows in Acts 6. So the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the primary function of the deacon is to take care of the administrative and other tasks that would keep the elders from being fully devoted to prayer and teaching the shepherding of God's flock. Right? So, so they said, well, we got to take care of these administrative tasks so that the Apostles can actually shepherd the flock of God, which is what they are called to do. And so they took care of, of the physical needs of the, of, the, of the church because that's what they had to do. And so that's what we say a deacon must be doing. They must be taking care of the physical needs that are in the church. Freeing up the elders and the church leaders to be able to do the job that they must do. Now we say, well, do we have deacons in our church? Well, yeah, we have deacons in our church, right? We know that. And if you've read the little book that I gave you, that I made available, there's this job description in the back where they have uh, deacons of different ministries that's, that's not something that we currently do but I think there's great benefit in that as it dramatically helps to assist the elders right now in our case the elder it's also, also worth noting that, that deacons are not elders the Bible does, doesn't ever confuse elders and deacons it never sandwiches them together and says, oh, deacons are really elders. It never uses language that says, you know what, this, the, a deacon is to be an elder. 
So we have to be careful. We, we, we don't want to do the same. We don't want to say, well, deacons are actually elders. No, they're not. Sometimes I look around our church and I see people serving. I see them serving in various ways. And I think to myself, you know what? They should be recognized officially as deacons. But I also know that there are ministry needs in our church where people could certainly help. And so here's my call to you. If the Lord is putting on your heart to serve, please talk with me. And some of you already have, but I want, I want to see each person serving the Lord in a way that lines up with how they are gifted, whether officially as deacons or unofficially. The last thing I want us to notice is the reward of a deacon. The reward of a deacon. After Paul gives the list for those who serve in an official capacity, he then gives us the rewards. Look what he says. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now having a good standing probably refers to both respect and uh, the church in a good standing in God's sight. We remember that Jesus humbled himself by becoming a servant and God highly exalted him. The Lord has promised that all who serve him will be rewarded both in this life and in eternity. And this should be great news to our heart, right? This, this should cause our heart to be filled with joy when perhaps sometimes the things we do aren't popular with man. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're serving the Lord. And I can't tell you how many times I've hung on to this, understanding that decisions that, that, that were being made were not going to be popular, but knowing it is what the Lord wanted and that I was serving God and not man. And that God is always faithful, even when man is not faithful. Listen to what he says in Matthew. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Lord rewards the person that humbles himself and faithfully serves him, even if the church does not notice, God always notices. It's not hidden from the sight of God. But deacons also have this great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And this is probably both confidence before God and people. A faithful servant can boldly go before the Lord in prayer because they know that they have a clear conscience and they are doing God's will. You can go boldly go before God when you know you're in the will of God. You know when you have trouble boldly going before God? When you're not in His will. This person can also have this quiet confidence when it comes to dealing with people because they know the firsthand reality of the Christian faith. And so they have this confidence. I'm all out of time. In conclusion, I want to give you a warning. There's a lot of people that have gotten involved in serving the Lord only to be hurt. Whether it's a deacon, an elder, a leader, whoever. Over the last few months I've been hearing horror story after horror story after horror story. Watch pastors go down in flames. Sometimes someone criticized them or they feel that they weren't appreciated. They couldn't take it anymore and they just quit. Sometimes they quit serving the Lord altogether. Sometimes they even drop out of the church. I felt the pain of watching pastors give up, quit. I've seen them try to fight the good fight. And hold on only to watch them crumble because they could not take the relentless attacks on them, not from outside the church, but from inside the church. I've witnessed pastors feel like they are stuck and the churches are on the brink of death. 
They don't know what to do. And they just quit. We could say, where are your deacons? <coughs> this is their role. To support you. To help you. To lift you up. Unfortunately, I've seen deacons who served, and when things went south, they quit. And it's hard. It's hard to give your life to something, to go all in, to invest everything you have, and then at the end of it, you ask yourself, did it really matter? Does anyone really care? And you know what you start doing in those moments? You throw yourself a little pity party. I've done that. And for me, I often have to give myself a reality check. And sometimes I have to give myself a tough love check. And I have to ask myself, Pastor, who are you doing this for? I don't say pastor to myself. I mean, <laughs> who are you doing this for? And sometimes, just sometimes, we serve and we have to go to Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. And we need to get alone all by ourselves. And we need to just read the Word of God. When it says, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at my table? Will he not rather say to his servant, Prepare supper for me? And you dress properly. And you serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also. When you've done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Do we understand? We don't deserve anything. That God does. We don't, God doesn't owe us a thing. We don't serve for what we can get out of it. We don't serve for our own glory. And sometimes the best thing for us to do is really understand the grace of God and to come to God and to cry out to God, God, thank you. Thank you for letting me serve. Oh, dear God, I want to be poured out as a drink offering for you. Dear God, let me be all things to all people so that I might win some to Jesus Christ. And, and Lord, let me just be your servant. And Lord, when I stand before your throne and, and I want to be battered and bloody and bruised because this world gave me everything it could possibly give to me. It gave me its all. But I served you anyway, God. And may we cry out, I am unworthy. I've only done what you asked. And may we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We do it for the Lord. It's all for him. All of our service, everything we do, it's for him and his glory. We don't serve people. We serve the Lord, the King of kings, the Alpha, the Omega, the Lord of lords. And when you think no one sees you, he sees you. If you're saved, you're his servant. You're his deacon, whether officially or not. Here's the question. Are you saved? Because we're saved to serve. But do you know him? You can put your trust in him today to save you. You could say something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are God's son and you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. Amen. It's not a magic prayer. Christ saves you. It's just calling out to Him to save you. And if you said that prayer or something like it, I'd love to follow up with you. 
You can come forward at the end of the service. You can talk to me later. If you're online, you can text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488. You can even do that from your pew. Lastly, let me, lastly, let me say it feels good when people appreciate your service, doesn't it? There's something gratifying about it. But even if they don't, don't you quit. Don't you give up. Don't you throw in the towel. Don't you say, I'm all done. You keep on serving. Because you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for the Lord. And He keeps a perfect record. You're saved to serve. The one who gave His life as a ransom for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word this morning. I thank you for those that have been faithful to be here and, and listen. Those that maybe online who, who willingly stuck it out. But Lord, I pray this morning that as your word went forth, that it touched the hearts of people and that it accomplished exactly what you wanted to accomplish. And Lord, there may be those that are here this morning. They know they're saved to serve. And perhaps they've had a struggle. Maybe they've not been serving. Lord, would you reveal to them where you want them to serve? May they be plugged in and serve you. And Lord, there may be those that are here this morning that were on the brink of throwing in the towel and giving up and saying, I'm done. Oh God, you are so faithful when we are so lacking in faith. And so, Lord, there's somebody there that that's their heart. God, would you let them know you see? Would you let them know you're keeping a record? Would you let them know that you love them? They don't have to give up. We just got to do it to please you. May our eyes be on serving our glorious King. And it helps make it so nothing else matters. And then Lord, I pray for those who may hear this message and they don't know Christ as their Savior. They're not saved to serve. Oh Lord, may today be the day of salvation for them. May they call out to you, dear Jesus, save me. I want to serve you the rest of my life. So Father, I pray that if you've spoken to us this morning, that we would respond in whatever way that looks like. Whether it's online, whether it's in person, whether it's later on, may we respond to your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, you do the wrong to come.